My name is Ted Burns, and I'm Senior Director of Political Affairs and RADPAT for the American College of Radiology Association, and I want to welcome you to our Radvocacy podcast hosted by RADPAT. Our goal with the podcast is to give you a behind-the-scenes look into the various advocacy efforts of the college, our members, and insights from political influencers here in Washington, D.C. I'm honored today to have with me ACR member Dr. Leah Davis. Now, Dr. Davis, this is the first time, other than a couple of emails, you and I have ever even talked. So this is going to be pretty educational for me about not only what you've done on the advocacy side, because it's on the state side, and mm-hmm. I kind of do a little bit more of the federal side. So this is this is a good opportunity for me to learn what's happening, but also just to get to know you a little bit better. And anytime we get to know our members, it's obviously a good thing. So tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from, where you've trained, where you practice now, subspecialty all that good stuff. It's always helpful for, I think, our, our listeners to kind of get a, a picture of who you are and your background as we get ready to talk about some of your advocacy efforts. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I was honored that you asked me to come talk about what we've been doing in Michigan. Um, I'm a Michigander from the beginning. I was born in Michigan. I went to undergrad and medical school at Michigan State University. And so today it's kind of a rough day for all Spartans. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sending all my love to the Spartans. I did my residency as a combination. I'm a, an osteopathic physician, so I did my residency in a combination uh, program between Michigan State University and Henry Ford Health System, and I was primarily at more community hospitals, but um, we took call and took some rotations at Henry Ford, Maine. And then I did my fellowship in musculoskeletal imaging at Henry Ford Hospital, And after that, I um, moved to South Carolina. My first job was an academic position at Medical University of South Carolina. And I was there for three years. And that was really, what's that? I said Charleston is beautiful. Yeah, it was really great. It was really great to be in academics. They have a really strong radiology program there. The city is awesome and the weather is great, except for mid-July. (laughs) <laughs> and so I stayed there for three years and I would have stayed longer, but just for family reasons, we moved back to Michigan. And um, so I'm currently practicing in a physician owned private practice radiology group in Traverse City called Grand Traverse Radiologists. Okay. Now help me with the Michigan geography. Whereabout is that in the state? It, that's not UP, is it? No, it's like okay. the base of the pinky between the third and fourth fingers. I'm okay. sorry, between the fourth and fifth fingers at the base of the pinky. Okay. You haven't been to Traverse City? You I, should I've, come. I've been to Ann Arbor. And okay. of course, everyone goes to Ann Arbor. So sorry about that with the whole Michigan, Michigan no, State thing. Okay. That was to do Grand Rounds. And then I've been to Grand Rapids. So it's like two hours pretty much straight north of Grand Rapids. Okay, cool. Above and the Grand knuckles. Rapids. Grand we Rapids. say above the knuckles, you know, okay. on, the, on the mitt, on the hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So obviously you have very strong Michigan ties, which is mm-hmm. uh, kind of good to see that, you know, a lot of times our rads who are really involved in advocacy usually have a pretty strong foothold in the community that they're in. It's pretty rare that you see them in a new community for two or three years and they are able to kind of get involved. It's usually those who have been there a long time and kind of have the, the vibe of the state and are familiar with kind of how things go. Obviously, having been in South Carolina, you know how different states are, are very different, right? With their culture yeah. and the and the um, kind of just the overall vibe, as I call it. So before we get into your successful body of work at the state legislative level in Michigan, tell me how you got motivated to get involved. Uh, was this like you were voluntold? Did someone like 
promise you a false set of goods? Or did you like just, I, hey, I've always been passionate about this? Because as you know, and I don't think this is wrong to say this, that this is not the natural wiring of most of our radiology members. I mean, I always kind of joke, a lot of our members choose to be in a dark room by themselves on purpose. So that's not really <laughs> what they want to do is to get out and, and start mucking it up at the state legislative level. And then so talk about how you got involved and then how you find time to do all this, because I do think that's really important for us to discuss because I know, you know, especially now there's a lot of work shortage issues. There's a lot of people feeling burnout. So then you have that to balance along with your family. And then it's almost overwhelming to think about getting more involved in, in advocacy efforts. Right. So for instance, we have a lot of folks who will say, you know what, I'll write you a check. It takes me five seconds but I don't, I, I can't get involved in advocacy. I just don't have the time and the energy and the effort that it takes. And so kind of walk me through how you got involved, what interested you, and then how you figure out a way to do it all, because it is a lot. Yeah. So your point about experiencing physicians and just, and radiolo- like a radiology position in different states is, is really important. And I, I think I did get that from South Carolina to Michigan. But the other thing that changed a lot when with that career change was I went from academic to private practice. And those are two very different models to work in. And part of my motivation, you know, so I've been out less than 10 years, and um, a lot has changed in the medical landscape in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I was still completing my residency when we didn't have work. Well, we didn't have, we had work hour restrictions, but we didn't have the, um, you know, we, we were at the hospital 36 hours straight. We stayed overnight my intern year and worked all the next day. We didn't have, so some of those like work restriction things have changed. I also noticed when I was talking, I was, when I, I was MSK fellowship program director at MUSC for a couple of years. And when I was working with the residents and fellows, I noticed that they were experiencing things I didn't experience in, in their training and in their job search for Example, there were a lot more non-physicians that were on the floors and they were sometimes competing with non-physicians for procedures. When they were looking at workforce, they were they were entering these like private equity venture capitalists, you know, or they had the option to enter these private equity venture capitalists, like mega groups, which mm-hmm. really wasn't so much of an issue when I was when I was first looking. And so there was a, so there was a big change in the landscape. And so that's kind of got me thinking about how legislation is playing a role in some of these things. There's also, of course, you know, recurrent CMS cuts that are um, disproportionately affecting radiologists. And and so in private practice, I see the downstream effects of that as well. And then the current stressors in medicine are huge and they have been exacerbated by the pandemic, but they were there before. So I guess all of those things, you know, people were not happy in their jobs. People were, the reimbursement was going down. Residents and fellows were complaining about what job options were available and what was happening to them during training. So that just kind of like got me interested in everything that that was happening. Um, on the other end of that, I, I have three I have three kids and I had all of them during training. So I was late wow. to medicine. I was a high school biology teacher for three years before oh, I went back to medical school. So I had my first, I had my first son in between second, second and third years of medical school. And then I had my second son with awful, with awful timing right at the beginning of internship year. So September oh, of intern year. And then I had my daughter in between my second and third years of, of residency. So I was feeling some of these, you know, some of these issues that could be 
that could be managed or that are affected by legislation myself. And more recently, I have noticed that the, you know, I, I care deeply about the quality of the medical care that we're giving. And I've invested a lot in my education. I care really deeply about the quality of the radiology services that are offered. And I've, I've seen some drastic changes in medicine across the board. There's a lot more non-physicians. And I have personally experienced being the only physician on, on cases in the hospital. You know, people are now calling me and asking me for clinical advice, which I don't feel qualified to give all the time. So I guess my motivation is multifactorial, but it, it comes from the fact that I've seen these major changes in the healthcare landscape, that I've experienced some of these legislation affecting some things in my own job individually. And so I just decided to start learning more, basically. I, did, I didn't go into this. I wasn't really active in advocacy as a resident or even a medical student. I never really thought I was going to be active in advocacy. Um, I just noticed some things I didn't like. And so I started trying to look into where they're coming from and what is kind of guiding these changes in practice. I got more involved with Michigan Radiological Society when I moved back to Michigan and I got on the legislative committee and there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience there. And so I started being able to tap into some of that. I got involved with the Michigan State Medical Society, which I thought was important because I wanted radiologists to have a voice and, um, and there are some radiologists that are involved, but I wanted to be involved with that. So I got more involved with the legislative and regulatory committee on the Michigan State Medical Society. And I just started kind of networking with other people that are interested in advocacy. So that's a long answer to what my motivation was. But the second part of your question is really, really important. The balance, finding the balance and finding the time. Because as I've learned, and and I'm as you know, legislative activities kind of sometimes comes in erratic and unpredictable phases. And right. everything seems to be smoothly sailing. And then all of a sudden, like there's a bill on the floor and it's going to be voted on tomorrow. And, yep. and so then it's like these massive calls to action. And, and we start, I start reaching out to people. And so I've had to, that, I'm still trying to figure out how to kind of balance that side of things. I do want to stay involved on these committees and I think it's really important for radiologists to be represented. But I have three biological children and I have one exchange student living with us this year. Oh, geez. <laughs> and they're, three of them are teenagers and they're very busy. So I end up doing a lot of multitasking, which everybody is doing and it doesn't always produce the best work, but at least sometimes get stuff done. And I sometimes have to back up. You know, I sometimes purposely have to just take a break and step back and say, I'm not going to focus on this right now. And and usually that's possible. I mean, we have a whole team of people working on stuff and I'm just one little piece. So <laughs> when I step back, I feel a little guilty, but I, I think the, the momentum is still definitely there. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting, right? Because obviously I'm not a radiologist. So our, you know, we do this as our living, right? Yeah. Doing the, the advocacy stuff and the lobbying stuff. And I have two teenage kids as well. So I totally feel that pain in a lot of ways. It is interesting when you look at kind of the the way things usually roll out from a, a state legislative advocacy perspective. It's like hurry up and wait. Yeah. And then it's go. It, yeah. There's very little like go, 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 go. But but I but but I think it's really important with all of that though, is and you and I may get into this actually a little bit, and maybe this is a segue, is you know, the relationship building, it gets really 
challenging at times because you spend some time building a relationship with like a state legislator. Now at the state legislative level, they don't have the same staffs as they do at the federal level. You have a lot more staff, you know, with people on the Hill, but you can build relationships all the time after you've met with someone once or twice over a coffee or in a meeting in their office. And you can just keep in touch by email, keep in touch by text and just yeah. kind of keep. So that doesn't take a lot of time. That's kind mm-hmm. of just a maintenance type of thing, but it's important. But I think when you and I have had some initial email exchanges, what can be really challenging and frustrating is you you spend time to develop these relationships and then, oh, you know, the staff person leaves or mm-hmm. the, the legislator leaves. The legislator maybe loses in a race. The legislator retires. The legislator runs for federal office now, which is great for us. You can maybe hand them over to us, but then you've got to start from scratch with that next person. And so obviously we see that all the time on the Hill. There's 75 new House members in Congress. That means 75 House people, many of whom we knew, are gone, right? And so we're starting from scratch all over again. Man, we just took five years to build that relationship. That member of Congress was with us, was a champion, and poof, now they've retired. Poof, now they've lost in a primary. And we're like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. So, So talk about, I guess, maybe if that's relevant and applicable to you, trying to figure that out. And then also we can get into some of what you've experienced just with the case study of scope issues in Michigan and, and kind of, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, give it away, but really success sometimes is more in defense than offense, but, yeah, but yeah. I don't know if you want to touch on any of that. Yeah. Well, that applies to Michigan a hundred percent right now. We just had our whole, our state house and Senate flip control and um, we have all democratic controlled government attorney general house Senate this year. And so, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and that's one of the things we've been trying to communicate with people is like, this is a good, I mean, this is a good opportunity. There's some things that we've been asking for and, and pushing for, and they were just hard no's for a long time. And there's some things we were starting to feel very comfortable in. And definitely there were some relationships that we were very, that were very strong and that we had really educated legislators and they had really listened on certain topics. And now it's like the tables have just flipped and we're just kind of trying to figure out who who is educated on certain topics, who's open to education on certain topics, what topics are they talking about? They've, you know, they've kind of switched maybe away from some scope issues and now on to some tort reform issues. And we were really heavily hitting the scope issues before. And so we're sort of like following in the wake and trying <laughs> yeah. to find our space, you know, and trying to find the openings. And so... We've been trying to reach out to, to the legislators, the new legislators, and establish relationships. I think I'm I'm fortunate because I'm in northern Michigan, and it's really easy to get to know and, and to meet up with my legislators. It's you know I have them all on my text on text on my phone, and I'll shoot them text. And but like you said, it took a while to to establish those relationships. You know I right. was back and forth with the offices asking if we could meet for coffee, and then oh something came up, and then. And I had some not so great relationships, you know, where I was just flat out told, like, just so you know, you know, politicians don't usually like doctors and you only come talk to us when you want money. And and I was like, oh, okay, well, so the so the work up front is really important. But we've also been lucky because we've had some allies that were on the Senate side that flipped and, and are now in the House and. And so we still have those connections. But yeah, the the changeover of the legislators is really can really set you off course. 
but but I think it's important to consider that and important to remember that we have a lot of opportunities for some new relationships and some of those some of those I'm sure will be really great. We just have to spend a little bit of time building them. Yeah, and you, and you never know, right? You never yeah. know. And the one thing that's interesting again at the federal level is 6% of Congress has a healthcare background. So 94% <laughs> has no that's idea about healthcare. And probably almost all of them think the rad tech is the radiologist, right? Right? Is Jim Cavanaugh, I believe, still there? He is, okay. yeah. And he's Jim's, le- Jim's legendary. Yeah. Um, and so having a state dedicated lobbyist certainly is a huge help in kind of building those new relationships and kind of getting a better feel for okay, who may need to be more educated on something than someone else, right? I mean, they can kind of do a little bit of the legwork for you so that you're not going in cold, you're not going in blind when you're first trying to meet the legislator. Yeah. So first of all, just to to touch on something that you said in the beginning, that we spent a lot of time on our state legislative advocacy days, just talking to legislators and asking them, do you know what a radiologist is? Like, do, Mm -hmm. do you, are you aware that a radiologist has been involved in your care before? Because a lot of them are like, yeah, 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 I know. I know what you guys do. You take the x-rays. And (laughs) and so um, we actually invited one of our local legislators to our radiology department and took him on a tour of everything and said, we just want you to understand how integrated we are in the patient care that happens at this hospital and how, important it is for legislation to prioritize funding for us and and also to protect you know scope of practice uh, protect against scope of practice issues because especially in Michigan we have a giant geographic footprint we take we have people helicoptered in from the, the upper peninsula we have like all across northern Michigan and we are trying to provide the same kind of the same level of care that they're getting in you know more urban centers and um, so so I think those things are really helpful to just educate people about what radiologists are. And, and I, it's better done small group, one-on-one, you know, talking about certain issues. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah. yeah. Let me jump in there real quick before you talk about Jim. So I, we do a lot of the, the site visits at the federal level with uh, members of Congress. Uh, we've done well over 200 over the last I don't know, 10 plus years or so. And what we find without fail is when they visit a radiology practice and they walk around and they see the kind of what we call the back end of it, right? So they're not seeing it as the patient perspective. They're seeing mm-hmm. it as they would typically. They're seeing the the imaging equipment. They're seeing the PAC system. They're seeing all the kind of administrative burden of staffing that's involved and all the different things that need to go on. Oftentimes when you talk to them about even just the, the operational costs of a practice and how much equipment costs, Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, yeah, I mean, these cuts, you know, a difference between a 4% cut and a 2% cut or a 10% cut, but we need to get a new piece of equipment that may cost two or $3 million. And we yeah. don't know if we're going to be able to afford that. Oh, and by the way, we just had two radiologists leave. Now we need to get two, one or two more to recruit. So we don't have burnout to be an issue here at the practice because of the volume and all these other things going on. Then they, then it's like a light bulb goes off. They can actually understand how the domino effect really has an impact on not just the practice, but on then delivery of of care to patients. And so I think the more we can push these site visits, we do it a ton already as this is a great way when you have new members of Congress or new state legislators to get them involved. I can't stress this enough. And really you can do it within 40 minutes. 
30 mm-hmm. minutes. You can have them come. It's got to be, you know, quick and easy because they all have other stuff on their agenda to do that day with maybe mm-hmm. other constituent services and other places they're going to go uh, have meetings at. But it's I'm glad to hear that you've done that because we kind of always think of it at the federal perspective, but at the state perspective, it's a huge thing as well. And so I, I'm glad to hear that. So uh, we were talking, we referenced Jim Cavanaugh. Tell me about Jim. I mean, yeah. I know Jim, but tell me about uh, how that's worked for you all out there in Michigan. Okay. But one more thing to what you said. Um, it's great for the representatives to see actually what's happening on a day-to-day basis in radiology. But because part of my struggle has been getting radiologists on board to actually speak to people and actually send emails, it was also, I think, really great for our group members to to meet someone in person and shake their hand and sit down and talk with them. And, and then I said to them, Hey, so there he is. You can just email him now. If you, if something comes up, if you have a concern, you can just email him. So I think it was great from that side as well. That, that's um, a great point because then it makes it seem like it's real, that it's not mm-hmm. going into some deep, dark black hole where, Oh, they're not going to care. They don't even know who we are. What do they, you know, they're not going to fuss with it. They actually have the interaction and they say, you know what? Maybe they can help us. They seem mm-hmm. interested. Maybe this is worth a, a two-minute email click, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a really good point. It's a good way on both sides to build that relationship and and validation that there's reason to to do what it is that y'all are doing. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Jim Cavanaugh has been a huge, I and mean, he is a huge asset to the Michigan Radiological Society. Um, I've learned a lot from him. I've 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 spoken with him a lot on I on email and in person over the last few years as I've become more involved. And he's just a wealth of information and he has so many really great ideas. So part of, actually we, we were fortunate to receive the ACRA grant money for two years in a row. And, and a, those for us at this point where we are in our, in our, at our state level, we've used that to directly increase his face-to-face time with legislators. And, and is that at, the scope of practice money? Yeah. So can you just briefly, maybe a minute or so to spend on on that process? Because we've talked a lot about that to our states and we have states who are applying, but I think it bears to repeat kind of that it's available and and how it can have impact and the Mm -hmm. accessibility of it. If you can talk to that. that So I learned about the scope of practice grant money last year, I guess, so that we're, we're in our second cycle now. And I, and I wasn't aware of it before, and I was actually fairly intimidated by the idea of applying for grant money from ACR and what would I need and how do I take it to my state society. And I was on, I'm the co-chair of the legislative committee, and so I, I downloaded the application, and, and with the help of my chair, we kind of filled in some pieces. And just on our first round, we just said we, we just want to purely increase funding because we didn't have a giant project in the works. And and so we completed the application um, with the help of our, our then president of our state society. And we applied and went through the whole process where there was an application review. And then there were some questions about how we would use it and, and some logistical questions about where the money would go. And um, we, were, we were very fortunate to receive some money that first year. And that, that year, we used the money. And this year as well, because we're still sort of in the project building phase. So I guess part of my hesitancy was that like, I don't have a giant fundraising project. I don't have like a whole graphics, you know, team that in a whole graphic ready to go. And so maybe I shouldn't be applying for this money yet. But I found as I went through the application process and spoke with Eugenia a few times that 
that was okay. I don't have to have a formalized project. I don't have to have this very detailed plan. I have to just, I, I do have to have some details, but I have to have kind of a, a plan in place for how to use the money. And so we use it to directly increase our lobbyist efforts. So we, we helped Jim Kavanaugh get face-to-face meetings with the leaders of all four caucuses and our, at our state level. We helped him get into meetings with, you know, speakers of the house on both sides. We got more face time and we got more education time with all of those individuals. And he was already doing a great job, but we, this was like a push for the effort. And at the time, hope it's okay if I talk about that, but at the time we had a scope of practice bill for nurse practitioners in Senate that was waiting to get heard, to be heard by the committee. And then they were hoping we'd get passed onto the Senate floor. And so the timing of that grant money was really important for us. And we got it just at the right time where we could get some more face time with the legislators, do some more education. And we were able to stall that scope of practice bill in the committee. It didn't ever even get, I don't think it ever even got heard by the committee at that time. And what we heard from the legislators, uh, the head of the health policy committee was that I've realized I just don't have enough information to even bring this to my committee right now. And I credit Jim Kavanaugh with a lot of that because I think him getting out there and getting in front of the legislators and having a little bit more time to dedicate was really influential. And like you said, some of this is defense, not offense. And so when we got it stalled on the floor and he said, I'm not taking it, the chair said, I'm not taking it to committee. We all just kind of stepped back and waited and it expired when the session ended and it didn't get brought up and lamed up. And so we consider that a big success. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, having worked in the state legislative arena, uh, now granted it was a long time ago and it was definitely not Midwest. It was in the South, which is a completely different cultural phenomenon for from a lobbying perspective. And you want to talk about the good old boys network. That's where it originated down where I mm-hmm. was in Alabama. You know, it is very, very easy to get something slipped through. Mm-hmm. In 24 hours, 12 hours, and no one knows. I mean, it is crazy. People don't really realize. At the federal level, you have so many watch groups and, and so many other you know, stakeholders who are constantly eyes on every little minutia of, of detail on the Hill. All the media is covering it. Like It's much more difficult to get things kind of snuck in. Yeah. Unless it's a huge legislative, like continuing resolution budget bill, which at that point everything gets, you know, gets stuck onto it. But with the state level, it is super scary because I know when I was doing the work I was doing, it was similar. We were all defense. We wanted mm-hmm. something to not get passed, and and that's something that's a different approach too. Like, yeah, if you're trying to stop something, that's a completely different tactic than trying to get something forward, right? Yeah. And so. Yeah. Um, it's 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 kind of rewarding, but also super nerve wracking because you're like, well, wait a second, like, can the end of the day get here quicker so we yeah, can yeah. be assured that it, nothing's going to be snuck in? And then that first 24 hours after that deadline, you need to make sure, okay, are we sure nothing got snuck in? Like, let's yeah. go back and look at everything that that passed in the last hour of session or whatever it may have been. So. I can totally relate to you. I'm actually getting like PTSD thinking about it now as we're talking about our experiences. And that was even before I came to the ACR. That was with a different organization, but nonetheless. So you you talked about you had the big scope issue, nurse practitioner bill. You guys were able to, with all of your FaceTime meetings and education efforts to to stop the bill from from passing or or at least being even considered at that point. 
Okay. And now do you anticipate, I assume, another effort in the next session? Yeah, I think it's going to be never ending. Michigan is sort of teetering on the edge of unsupervised practice of medicine. So we now require collaborative agreements, but not that, you know, we've removed the term supervision. And we had a CRNA bill that had a few tweaks to it by our state society last year, but did eventually pass that, that did expand their scope of practice a little bit. And we have had chiropractor bills in the past, which we believe are going to be coming up again. We definitely, we know that scope of practice from nurse practitioners is going to be coming up again. We have some discussions about the terminology change with physician assistant to physician associate coming up. So I think like all states, we're, we're going to be bombarded with scope of practice issues again. And so- So what would you say is if there's kind of one bullet point that you could almost say applies to any of these scope issue fights. Is, is there one thing that you found that's really effective or, or at least from your perspective that when you're having these conversations, you feel like if you can make a certain point, it's really going to resonate? Well, I wish I knew that answer. I, I've had conversations where I've gotten great feedback from the legislators like, oh, I had no idea that the training differences were that vast. Or, oh, I had no idea that as a radiologist, you're sometimes the only physician or, oh, I had no idea that if I show up in the emergency room, I don't, I can't be guaranteed to see a physician. But then sometimes the vote comes up and they vote a different way, you know? And they say to me, like one I just spoke with said, um, you know, I'm, I'm really upset by this. This is a huge public health crisis, you know, or issue. And we need to make people aware of this and we need to do something about this. And I'm really sorry that I voted on yes on the CRNA bill because I didn't know all of this. And I felt really good. I left the meeting like, oh, I made such an impact. I felt so good. And I went to talk to our state society people and said, I just had this great conversation. And they all rolled their eyes and said, do you know how many times we talked to him and pointed out the differences in training? So I don't know what the magic bullet is. Um, I think that you, I think you, you can definitely make an impact, but you have to get, you have to get past that initial, like just being polite enough to give you their time kind of phase and get to the real issues. And, and some of that's probably just really, really personal stuff. Somebody who's personally experienced something. I've, I have found that if I bring up personal experiences with people, they tend to be a little bit more receptive. You know, my brother had twin babies that were born premature and he's in Tennessee, he's not in Michigan, but so they had a lot of follow-up appointments. And one time he was really confused about what the information that he got from a rheumatologist and, and then we look deeper into it and we're like, oh, you didn't actually, you know, you didn't see a physician for a rheumatologist. And so when you start bringing up like individual personal stories, I think it hits home a little bit. But yeah, I think that's always the case for sure. It just yeah. it becomes real. It's not just like a statistic, right? It's, it's Yeah. But, but then you hear the, well, I understand what you're saying, but what are we supposed to do about, you know? So I understand what you're saying about non-physicians not filling the rural healthcare crisis, but what are we supposed to do about this little clinic out in the middle of nowhere? And I don't have all of the answers for what to do, you know, and my priorities are really quality patient care, safe patient care and patient choice. You know, in that, in some of, some of the legislators will talk about, this is a, uh, like a free market issue, you know, and this, this yep. is just, if they can do it and people want to go to them, 
And so for those conversations, I try to bring up the, the importance of choice and free market. You know, if, if it's a free market, I should be able to choose who I'm going to. But if you are supporting the staffing of these rural hospitals with no physicians, then none of those people have a choice to see a physician. And so I, you know, I, I kind of try and find a place where we can get to a little bit deeper conversation, but it's really hard. It's, and I think that's part of the learning curve for me. I, I keep going back to like Jim and, and some of our state lobbyists and like, what am I doing? What am I, I mean, and this is like the, you mentioned earlier about how do you balance? You know, I've, I've definitely had multiple points where I've just said, I'm not making a difference. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm I'm just dumping all of my time and energy into these and I'm obviously not making a difference. So I'm doing this all wrong and I'm stepping back. And, and sometimes I do step back for a couple of weeks and, and I always end up coming around and like seeking the advice of people who've been doing this a lot longer and, and just asking them like, you know, what am I doing wrong or what? And most of the time it's not, it's just that it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard job. It's time consuming. It takes a lot of your energy and, and that's it. And so you just have to, if you care about it, you just have to keep going. It's, it's tough. There's no guarantees other than if you don't do it, you don't control it. Yeah. I mean, you already don't control it. But if you do nothing, then you definitely don't control it. So what would you say would be one piece of advice if you could give to someone who, you know, kind of was in your shoes when, right before you started getting involved and you're like, you know what, I need to do something. I should say something. How do I get involved? What do I do? And, and, and what would, if you came whizzing by and, and heard them speaking to themselves about, you know, how is it worth it or not? What would be your piece of advice? What would you well, I was thinking that? about this a lot because, and I don't, and first I want to say, you know, I'm really new to this, so I'm still learning a lot. So I don't claim that I have the best answers or the best advice. I think reaching out to people who have already been doing it is really helpful. But I, as I was thinking about this idea, I think you can do, I think you need to do two things. I think number one, you need to zoom in like zoom into your practice, zoom into your hospital, zoom into your community, get on hospital committees, get on credentialing committees if you can. That's where a lot of decisions are made. Even if there's state scope of practice laws, the hospital still has to credential people for those procedures. And so you can have an impact for scope of practice there. Get in your county medical society, start networking with physicians. I think radiologists um, in some places do a really good job of networking with the other physicians and in other places, not so well. So, you know, reach out to your ER people, reach out to your private practice and, and start. I think we're all going to fail if one of us fails. You know, it's, it's like we keep saying like, oh, this was an anesthesiology problem. Oh, this was a primary care problem. Oh, this is a, oh, it's not going to hit general surgery. Oh, it's not going to hit radiology. And none of that is true. And until we all like band together and start helping each other, I don't, I think that we're not going to be really successful across the board. So I think you need to network with your, with your community and with your physicians. And I think you can talk to your families and talk to your patients and talk to your, you know, talk to community members about what they can do as well. Sometimes their voice is much more powerful than mine when talking to legislators. So I would say zoom into that. On the other hand, I would say branch way out. (laughs) So First of all, the, radiolo- the radiological societies are really important. And I think I mentioned a couple of times, I think it's important mm-hmm. to have representation of radiologists. So back to the, the point that things get kind of snuck into bills here and there. Imaging gets 
kind of slid into a lot of legislation. And unless you read the fine print, you don't know it's there. So even our scope of practice bill, while we were fighting it from a state level across the board, I brought it to the Michigan Radiological Society. And and I, of course, they were aware of it, but I pointed out at our meetings, like, did you notice that the clause order and interpret imaging is in this as what they're asking to do? And in our CRNA bill, it was asking to supervise radiologic technicians. And so when you start reading the fine print, radiology is everywhere mm-hmm. in all of those scope of practice bills. So I think be involved with your state radiological societies. I think as radiologists, we need to be involved with our state medical societies as well. Number yeah. one, to point out to them that what the training of a radiologist is and why it's inappropriate for these radiology components to get to get into these bills. Um, we wrote a resolution for our House of Delegates to ensure that radiology interpretation is performed by physicians only, which passed through our House of Delegates and is now um, at our state medical society and hoping we're going to get a bill written on that in the next year or so. Consider AMA involvement. I think, you know, there's a lot of different differences in opinion about AMA, but AMA is really stepping up with the physician recovery plan. And so, you know, you can take a route from your state society to be a member representative member of your state medical society and even to the AMA. And then I would say contact your legislators both locally and in a broader sense in your throughout your state to educate them. And then there's national grassroots organizations, which are a huge resource. So there's a, a Physicians for Patient Protection is a grassroots advocacy organization that has thousands of members. And there you from that point of view, you get on the ground information from people in all different states. You don't have to talk to your lobbyists. You don't have to talk to your legislators. You you know, it's like physicians across the country that care about that issue. And and it's a great networking opportunity and, and, and it's a great place to share resources. So I, you know, I don't think one of those is more important than the other, but I think you do have to go small and go big at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I think it's like, don't put limits on it. Like, kind of how we were talking about once you get involved in one thing, it'll kind of snowball into other yeah. stuff, but whatever that easiest first step niche is for you, whatever that is, then you'll find that you kind of get the, what we call get the bug, which is a good mm-hmm. and a bad thing. And then once you get that bug, then it'll kind of, you know, evolve into, you know, more stuff and, and a broader reach, if you will. We always finish our uh, episodes with what we call the lightning round. Again, kind of similar to how we started where we asked for your background to get a kind of a snapshot of of where you've been and who you are. We like to finish in a similar type of way, but more with kind of your personal interests. So favorite food. So my favorite food is tacos, but only if they're the tortillas that my dad makes. He makes his own tortillas and they're really, really good. And so that's my favorite meal. Okay. Place to travel. This is a hard one. I love traveling and I would love to go everywhere. But at this phase in my life with the limitations of job and kids, I think our favorite places to travel are back to where we have good friends. So Charleston would be a good place. We love the weather. We love the area. We have a lot of good friends there still. So probably I'd pick Charleston at this point. Great place. Hobby or activity? Not um, and You can't say advocacy. It has to be something not no, advocacy. No, no, no. <laughs> So I have trouble with this question sometimes because I always feel like so boring when people are like, what's your hobby? And I'm like, I don't know. I go to work. I take care of my kids. I do some emails and advocacy stuff. I 
go to sleep and I do it all over again. But I do, but okay. But if I had time camping and hiking, everybody in Northern Michigan likes camping and hiking pretty much. So camping and hiking would probably be my, my hobbies. Okay. And then we'll finish with our, uh, our last thing, favorite saying or quote. Now this can be something that's uh, your own. It can be unique to you. It can be a well-known saying or quote. There's really no right answer here. Do I, can I have two? Of course. I was, so my kids will tell you, this is my famous quote to my kids that I tell them every day is the quote is to do the right thing every single time. So I start saying it and they all go every single time. Like, okay. So that's my good quote. But then my daughter reminded me that my other quote that I love is if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. (laughs) Oh, okay. Interesting. Look, I want to thank you. It's been great to get to know you. I appreciate all you've done and have an appreciation for what that's involved with. It, you know, just again, balancing family life and work life and, and this this extra advocacy life. And, and it takes a lot and it's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress at times. But at the same time, if folks like you aren't doing it, you know, we could be in a, in a much worse situation for not just our members who are, uh, you know, radiologists, but also the patients. And mm-hmm. so I think that uh, you are making a difference, even though there may be times where you're frustrated or feel like, you know, is this really worth it? I can assure you it is. So thank you for all you do. And uh, I enjoyed our time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I'll, you know, thank you guys for your support. Like I said, I've emailed back and forth many times, like, what do I do about this? How do I do this? Yep. And so it's really, it's, it's really helpful to have, um, all of your expertise available to us. Great. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.